Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be here. We are excited about what you taught us this week from 1 Peter. Uh, this is just a small and yet rich book of the Bible, and I pray, Lord, uh, that uh, you would just challenge us, even again this morning, seeing some of this content for really the second time this week, but we need your word. We need it to speak to our hearts. We need to be revived, Lord. We are guilty of uh, just a familiarity with your word that has calloused us to it at times. We have grown too comfortable and complacent in this world, and we need First Peter's reminder to live for the next. So please, Lord, uh, do that work in my heart and in our hearts collectively, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just wanted to make a quick note on the sheets you picked up for this next week's reading. Maybe you've already scanned the sheet and noticed that in addition to Second Peter, we'll also be reading Jude this week, and maybe you were scratching your head like, uh, why are we going out of order on the reading plan here? Jude isn't the next book. Well, a couple of reasons for that. The first is that if I didn't move Jude, we would try to do 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude all in one week, and that just seemed a little ambitious. I also wasn't sure that I could get enough content from 2nd Peter, so I was like, you know what, let's combine them. But there's even a more interesting reason for combining these two books, and that is that they are incredibly similar, to the point where some Bible scholars actually think that Jude may have had 2nd Peter open next to him as he's writing his book. I, I think as you're reading this week, you'll see what I mean. It is uncanny how much in common they have. Whether or not that is true, only we know. We do know that there is one author of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. Certainly, he could have worked in both of these men's lives to have them say very similar things, but maybe an unofficial assignment for you guys this week as you're reading Second Peter and Jude would be to just note the similarities that these books share. Again, it's not like they use the same word, like, oh, they both say the word blessed. No, like they both mention like very specific things that is like, Okay, something interesting is going on here between these two books. Uh, speaking of similarities, as you were reading 1 Peter this week, uh, did you notice any similarities it shared with the book that we have read recently? Did it remind you of something you have read already this year? James, James yes. I think their proximity to each other in the canon of Scripture intentional or not, is just unbelievable. James and Peter quote each other at least a couple of times, so some of the themes that we'll uh, encounter in Sunday School this morning should sound very similar to what we saw in James, just because they're almost quoting each other verbatim. They both say, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. They both talk about trials producing steadfastness. I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Uh, this morning, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the introductory information to Peter. I actually want to do that next week, talk a little bit more about the authorship of 1 Peter. I just think it's really interesting for us to consider that the most well-known disciple, Peter, wrote a couple of epistles. And just maybe even this week as you're reading 2 Peter, think about that. What you know about Peter as the Gospels portray him and the kind of stuff that he's writing about is really interesting. Um, Maybe you could look at the top of your sheet here as we begin this morning and just see the theme of the book. I think this will kind of set the tone or the trajectory for today's lesson. The theme is following Jesus 
while we await his return. And if you've been doing this reading plan with us, from the beginning, we have seen that the return of Jesus Christ motivates or inspires godly living. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. We see this in Thessalonians. Here, Peter really harps on this idea. Jesus is coming back, so live differently. Live expectantly. Be prepared for his return. And we'll start off with our first question this morning um, from 1 Peter chapter 1, kind of getting a feel for the audience here. So... In 1 Peter chapter 1, there is a repeated word that Peter used to describe his audience. Uh, who would like to raise their hand and just say, what, what repeated word describes the audience here? Uh, Craig? Exiles. Exiles, yes. That was very astute uh, for you to pick up on that. Uh, other translations, uh, rather than using the word exile, they say uh, foreigners sojourners, strangers, pilgrims, aliens, and this wasn't one of the questions, but let me ask you this morning, what does that word exile communicate about Peter's audience? What comes to mind when you think about a foreigner, an exile, perhaps a refugee? What, what images come to mind? Anyone want to kind of volunteer? Yeah, John. Yeah, not welcome to go home. Kitty, you were about to say something? Yeah, forced out of their homeland. Yeah, perhaps very similar ideas there. Yeah, there's a kind of a couple of ways of interpreting this word exile. Uh, the first is to think about it in a literal sense, that these people were Jews who have been forced out of their homeland, Israel, and now they are living somewhere else. Perhaps they've retained some of their Jewish identity. They still speak Hebrew. Perhaps they still observe some Jewish customs. It is evident to people around them, hey, you guys aren't from around here, are you? They're exiles in the sense, maybe they can't go back home. They've been spread abroad. But there's also perhaps a spiritual component to this word exile. I want you to look at verse 17 in particular in support of the spiritual exile. Verse 17 says this, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, notice, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter is encouraging these people that their conduct needs to change because they are in exile. And before this, he doesn't say that their conduct needs to be more Jewish, that they need to do better at following the diet laws and these restrictions and that. No, their conduct needs to be holy because God is holy. And that makes people think, that makes me think, there's a spiritual component to being an exile. And while we're on this topic of exile, could I ask you to hold your finger here and turn back to Hebrews chapter 11? <coughs> Hebrews 11 actually speaks about exiles, and I think this was just too cool of a connection for us to pass up. We'll look at verse 13, but I wanted to provide just a little bit of context here. The author of Hebrews is talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what we commonly call the patriarchs of the faith. And these great men, almost ironically, did not live in these majestic palaces or mansions. 
They lived in tents, the writer of Hebrews says. That they were called, Abraham was at least, to leave his father and go to a new land, the land of Canaan. And so we might think he's in exile in that sense. But verse 13 is actually going to elaborate on this. Speaking about these patriarchs, verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. I'll pause there and ask you guys this. Is the author of Hebrews saying that Abraham was in exile simply because he left his father and traveled to the land of Canaan? Is that why Abraham was in exile? I see you shaking your head no, Shane. Why was Abraham in exile? Because he was seeking a heavenly. Yeah. He, he was looking for a city. Don't get me wrong, but the city he was looking for was built by God. He was looking for a country, but it wasn't any country on this earth. It was the country that the Lord had promised to him. And was Abraham's faith in vain? Notice that last sentence of verse 16 Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared for them a city. How awesome is that? That God is not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How crazy would they have looked to everybody else? Why are you guys living in tents? Why do you keep talking about this city that no one else can see? And yet, right now, today, these men are in that city whose builder and maker is God. Their faith has become sight. Their faith is incredibly noteworthy here for us. And so to tie all of this together, Hebrews, Peter, make application to our own lives. In the same way that Abraham was in exile on this earth, so too is Peter's audience exiles on this earth, and so too are we, if we are in Christ, we can rightly say that there is no earthly country that is our home. We are exiles in the sense that we are looking for another country, another city. If we're going to think about this biblically, some of the designations that we have come up with that mark us as being from certain countries, oh, I'm American, I'm from South Africa, I'm from Japan, you name it, those ethnic designations, in the grand scheme of things, really aren't all that important. They're pretty temporary. We don't belong here. There is no earthly country that we call home. We are all looking for the next country. And this is our identity. This is what unifies us. Certainly, you could look around here on a Sunday morning and see people from all sorts of earthly countries... That is one of the awesome things about our church. We're diverse in that sense, but really, we're not here. We're not unified because of our commonality in an earthly country. We are unified because of our commonality in that we're all looking for the next country. We're all living for that next city, 
the one whose builder and maker is God. We have commonality in Jesus, and this new country, this new city, is going to be inaugurated by an event. This brings us to our second question. There is a repeated phrase that is used in verse 7 and 13 that indicates the events that these people are waiting for. What repeated phrase did you notice in those two verses? Brenda. Yeah, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Quite simply, that Jesus is coming back. That's what people are waiting for. When we see Jesus, we know we're about to be in our country. Let me read from you what Luke says about the return of Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this verse before, but it's just kind of fascinating. Uh, Luke 21, Jesus talking about his own return. He says, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding at what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The contrast here between how unbelievers and believers respond to the return of Christ is fascinating. Unbelievers see these signs that are taking place in the natural world, and they are perplexed. They are fearful. They are shaking. This world's coming to an end. How do believers respond, though? Their posture changes. Jesus says, straighten up. Lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. You're almost home. Pretty awesome just to consider. While we wait, question three here, Peter has instructions for us. How are we supposed to live, according to verses 14 to 16, while we wait for this return of Jesus Christ? PJ. Be obedient lives. Yeah, holy, obedient lives. Uh, here are just some different phrases from that selection of verses. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Conduct yourself with fear during the time of your exile. But the summary statement is this from verse, uh, I believe, let's see, 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. The command while we wait for the return of Christ is don't be stained by sin. Don't let these things weigh you down. And that command in and of itself would be enough. And we'd say, okay, we have to obey it. But there's an even greater motivation than just the command here. And that brings us to question four. What reason is given for living this holy lifestyle? What compels us to live these lives? Yeah, Hutch. Because we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Yeah, because we have been bought with a price. And it wasn't an earthly currency like gold or silver. The price that was paid for us was the precious blood of Jesus Christ without spot or blemish who came to die and save guilty sinners like you and I. And so to live uh, immersed and indulging in a sinful lifestyle, if we've been purchased and redeemed out of that, is really to just not be thinking very much about the gospel. What person says, thank you, Jesus, for redeeming me from these things, but I'm going to dive headfirst back into them? That, that doesn't make sense. These were the sins that condemned me. You freed me from them. I, it would be foolish for me to go back to these sins. Peter says, in light of the return of Jesus Christ, live holy lives, remember what price you were bought with. This brings us to the application section from 1 Peter. And I asked you to get, 
list some practical implications of what it would look like for believers to live as exiles in this world. And I had some questions for you that hopefully shaped your thinking just a little bit. I asked, what do exiles devote their time to? Where are their affections? What occupies their thoughts? How does an exile regard his or her present circumstances? As you thought about those questions, what came to mind? How do Christians live practically as exiles in the world? Any thoughts on that? Cynthia. Yeah, that was a great answer. Not being conformed to this world. Anyone else want to share? What does an exile live like? John? My life must reflect the principles, commands, and precepts from God's word. I must live like I'm a stranger here and promote the worldview of God as shown in his word. Yeah, I must live like a stranger here. I love that line. Here's some of the things that I listed. I said, exiles don't put down deep roots. They realize that the place that they live is temporary. That Their satisfaction doesn't rise and fall on their house, their car, how well their portfolio is doing. They know, if I could put it this way, the currency of this life can't be spent in the next country. That's how an exile thinks. How about this? Exile doesn't assimilate into the culture that he temporarily lives in. I think this is evidenced or demonstrated very well for us. When you go to a big city like New York or Boston, there are a lot of people there who are originally from another country that have gained their American citizenship. Technically, they are Americans, but they all move together, they cluster together with people of their like culture. And are they living and letting American culture kind of dictate how they live? No, they're not. And that's why we have places like Little Italy and Chinatown and Greektown, because all of these now Americans have clumped together and kept and retained their old culture. In a similar way, I think that's what we should be like. Yes, we live here temporarily, but we're clustered together and we're retaining our heavenly identity, and living not like the culture around us that we just happen to live in, but we're looking for that next city, that next country. Someone within the last couple of weeks said this to me, and I thought it was pretty profound. They asked me this question, hey, what would happen if we took all the time we spent watching football and instead focused on pleasing the Lord? And, you know, this was just a pretty profound comment that happened to me as I was just thinking, you know, as we were just talking, and I was like, yeah, that's what we should be like as Christians. Just realizing, hey, I cannot be so attached to the entertainment and music and dress and speech of this culture because I'm living for the next one. I'm laying up treasure in heaven. We come now to chapter 2, and Peter gives us a little bit more of an explanation about where our citizenship actually is. So that first question there, after establishing that we are exiles, how does Peter describe our true citizenship? What are some of the synonyms or words that he uses to describe where we actually belong? Uh, Timmy. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Yeah, a chosen race 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Were you going to keep going? God's people. Yeah, God's people. I think that's a great general designation for it. Verse 10 is actually a quotation from Hosea that says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you had received mercy. Here's the point Peter's trying to make. You can rightly be called strangers, exiles, aliens, pilgrims, sojourners, because you do not belong here. You are God's people. You are God's children. And I want you to think about that because that designation of being God's people, God's children is really interesting. We see it a lot in the Old Testament. The people of Israel are the children of God. They are God's people. And we see how God takes care of them in amazing ways. He has a unique, special, intimate relationship with his people to the point that they keep messing up and he keeps providing for them. He's always faithful. He's always there for him. And to have that same uh, designation applied to us is, whoa, we're God's people too? How awesome is that? And yet again, Peter has instructions for us in verse 11 about how exiles should conduct themselves. Who would like to just uh, list? Yeah, Dave. Avoid passions of the flesh. Yeah. Peter says, exiles avoid passions of the flesh. In verse 12, he says that they need to keep their conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And perhaps all of this talk about holy living, while encouraging, and you understand that this is a command, is perhaps just a little overwhelming to you because you know your own struggle with sin. You know that at times in your life you are anything but holy. And perhaps that is a cause of discouragement and frustration, asking yourself the question, can I really be struggling this much with sin still after being born again? I think the second half of chapter 11 actually answers this question. I asked here, would it be accurate to conclude that a person no longer struggles with his sinful flesh after salvation? Is that true? No. The end of verse 11 says this, talking about these passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. If you are fighting sin, this is normal. I find this to be very encouraging. It is normative for Christians to be fighting sin, to be waging war against the passions of their flesh. Our flesh isn't just like shooting Nerf bullets at us and, oh, mm, you know, fun. No, this is warfare. This is a fight. This is a battle. So the exhortation for us is engage, keep persevering, keep fighting. We saw Jeff last week mentioned how we combat the devil, all of his tactics that he uses. Resist him. He will flee from you. Make use of the armor of God. We have resources at our disposal to fight these temptations and live out the holy lives that Peter um, is encouraging us uh, to follow. Moving on now to the application section. I had a bunch of fill-in-the-blanks for you on your sheets there. I decided to go ahead and fill them in for you. Um, so just looking at these verses, uh, perhaps either on your sheet or here on the screen, what common themes are you noticing that uh, would help you to summarize the attitudes or the way that we interact with God and others? Yeah, Claire. Submission. Submission, yeah. Any other synonyms come to mind when you think about the way that we should react or interact with people? Honor. Honor. Yep. I'm sorry, Brenda, what was the? Love. Hutch. Love. 
Humility. Humility. Yeah. Part of keeping our conduct honorable among the Gentiles is now explained for us in larger terms. Hey, we have an obligation to submit to government authorities. We have expectations in marriage. We have uh, different ways that we should be interacting with people that are marked by submission, honor, humility, love. I was thinking uh, earlier in the week about that two-word phrase, honor everyone. Kind of interesting, as I was just thinking about that, I thought about this uh, phrase that you'll hear every once in a while in our culture that says, uh, maybe you can finish it for me, respect is earned, not given. Have you heard that? And I just wondered like, how biblical that statement is. Here we are in Peter, and he's saying, honor everyone. We aren't really the determiners of if someone is going to be worthy of our respect or honor. Peter says, blanket statement, everyone is deserving of honor. You should treat the CEO of a company with the same honor that you would treat the homeless person on the street. Everyone is deserving of dignity and respect. This doesn't mean honoring them that you emulate their lifestyle. Certainly not. This doesn't mean that you appreciate the bad things they do. No. But maybe it's simple things like extending a greeting to someone shaking their hand, looking them in the eye, engaging everyone in meaningful conversation. Peter is saying, honor everybody. That, that was a rebuke even to me this week, to be honest, because we like to be determiners of who is worthy of our honor and who is not. And we make little categories of people that we really respect and people, mm, not so much. Honor everyone, Peter reminds us. Moving on now into chapter 3, one of the specific emphasis uh, that we chose to take a look at this week uh, about honor uh, concerns the marriage relationship. And there is a pretty stark warning in verse 7. For any man who does not honor his wife, what is a potential consequence of this? Dave. Prayer will be hindered. His prayer will be hindered. Yeah, how's that for a warning? Who would like their prayers to be ineffective? Peter says, don't honor your wife and wish granted. Your prayers will be hindered. This isn't just something that is incredibly nuanced, though. Verse 12 actually broadens this warning to include what? How does verse 12 broaden the warning? Dave? I put my own words. God will be against me if I don't treat my wife right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, verse... (laughs) Yeah, definitely, that would be true from verse 7. Verse 12 says this, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's kind of this contrast here for us. If you are righteous, God's ears are open to your prayer. However, if you are evil, God's face is against you. I don't think it'd be a stretch to say, that your prayers are also hindered, particularly when we consider those verses I had in parentheses. Psalm 66, 18 says this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not here. So let me just make a general comment from these two passages of Scripture here. There is a very real sense in which our sins hinder, obstruct, 
interfere with our prayers. So the warning for us then is, don't cherish sin. Don't cling tightly to it. Because if you do, you're going it alone in life. What a terrible place to be. Who wants to go through life with your prayers being hindered? No way. So men, honor your wives. Everyone else, don't hold and cling on to your sin. Repent of it. Humbly come before God and say, I need you, Lord, more than I need this sin. As we come to the application section of chapter 3, we kind of shift gears uh, to talking about suffering. This is a key theme in 1 Peter. And we will talk more about suffering in chapter 4, but in chapter 3, Peter anticipates Christians being questioned about their faith. So according to verse 15, what must a Christian always be prepared to do when questioned? Yeah, Joan, join. You must always be prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks him to give an account for the hope that is in him and he should do it with gentleness and reverence. Yes, a Christian should always be prepared to make a defense of the reason that the, of the hope that is in them. And you answered the second question, thanks, that the attitude with which they do it should be done with uh, gentleness and respect. And I think those two attributes are not something that we should just gloss over and keep going, right? Even the manner in which we respond to people is important. I was just thinking about, uh, you know, people that we traditionally call know-it-alls. It's almost annoying when they're right because of the manner in which they talk to you. You're like, ugh, I wish you were just wrong every once in a while, right? Certainly that should not be part of our life in any context, but certainly not as a Christian talking about the hope that is in them. Don't look down on people. Don't talk condescendingly to them and say, well, you're a sinner. You should go to hell. No. Talk to people about the hope that is in you with respect and gentleness. Let even your speech communicate care and concern for their condition. And so I didn't want this to just be a theoretical exercise for us, but I wanted us to actually stop and answer the question as if someone were posing it to us. So I said, hey, answer this question in a couple of sentences. I'm curious what you guys said. Here's the question. Everyone else seems to be depressed and discouraged with their lives, but you are different. How can you have so much hope? How would you answer that question if it were posed to you today. Joanne? Because we know what's coming. Okay. We know what's coming. Anyone else? Brenda? Jesus is always with us. We know Jesus is always with us. Andy? God will keep his promises. Yeah. John? My hope is not in my circumstances or my own abilities. My hope is in Jesus because he saved me from my sin and he's coming back someday. Yeah. That was awesome. My hope is in Jesus, not in my circumstances. And I know he's coming back. What a testimony to people. For your demeanor, perhaps, to be so different that they can see everyone else around them is just wallowing in despair and looking at their circumstances and saying, this is terrible. How do you have a smile on your face? I know Jesus. My sins are forgiven. The biggest problems of my life have been taken care of by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I know God's in control. Everything else doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I can endure and persevere because of what I know. Yeah, awesome. 
All right, coming now to chapter 4, I mentioned this is uh, a key theme of Peter's, talking about suffering. And in verse 12, Peter tells believers not to be surprised about what? Uh, Brenda? Yeah, he calls it the fiery trial. Uh, likely a synonym for persecution. Peter says, hey, you guys... When you are persecuted, don't be surprised. Don't be like, oh, what's happening? I didn't anticipate this. No, actually, if you remember, I think it was back in 2 Timothy, Paul warns us, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. So if you are concerned about following Jesus and living a godly lifestyle, Peter, Paul, they say, expect persecution. Expect a form of suffering for your faith. And what should be the response when you encounter this fiery trial, this persecution. Yeah, clear. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Now, I think we can all pause and admit that rejoicing and being glad when we are experiencing this fiery trial probably is not the two, like, attitudes that we would normally respond to something like this, right? It kind of reminded me of what James says when he says, count it all joy, and you're not sure what he's going to say next, and he says, when you experience trials... And you're like, oh, um, how can I be joyful in trials? Well, Peter gives a reason. Knowing that trials produce within you steadfast faith, that is cause for rejoicing. I am being made more like Jesus because of these things. Yeah. Well, P Peter also gives us a reason that we should rejoice and be glad when we encounter this fiery trial. And the reason is this. He actually says, I think it's in verse 13. Let me just double check. Yeah, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In a nutshell, what Peter seems to be describing here is that you can rejoice now because you know that you will rejoice in the future when Jesus is revealed. Perhaps there's a connection there to this fact that you are sharing in Christ's sufferings, you are experiencing suffering just like D Jesus did, confirming or proving that you are in fact one of Jesus' own children, you are a child of God, you are anticipating a day in which Jesus returns to make all things new, and you say, sweet, I can rejoice now knowing that my future is secure. I'm having a privilege, an opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ. Peter feels the need to uh, just clarify this suffering just a little bit further and gives a good and a bad reason that Christians should and should not be suffering. In verse 14, when would it be a good thing to suffer as a Christian? Bonnie? Yes, when we're insulted for the name of Christ, when it's our association with Jesus that brings persecution our way. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, when others revile you, rejoice and be glad, your reward is great in heaven. The prophets were treated this way. Jesus was treated this way. You are treated this way. There's an association there. That's a good thing. However, when would it not be a good thing for a Christian to suffer according to verse 15? Hutch? If you were a murderer, a thief, or a meddler. Yes, what Peter is saying is if... You are being persecuted or suffering because you murdered someone. Well, don't try to claim this false piety and say, well, I'm just being persecuted for my faith. Peter's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Christians need to be good citizens. They need to obey the authorities in their life. So don't be persecuted or don't suffer because you're sinning. 
because you're murdering people, but the suffering that is unique to a Christian is suffering for their association with Jesus. Moving on to the application section. Throughout this letter, Peter repeatedly reminds us that our suffering is not unique. Christ also suffered, and I asked you to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and just list some ways that Jesus gave us an example of how to suffer. He has gone before us. We are not the first people to ever suffer like this. Jesus did before us. What example does he give us in how to suffer well? Diane? He committed no sin. He had no deceit uh, in his mouth. Um, he re- didn't revile uh, anybody that he was filed. Uh, he did not answer back. He just looked to the Lord. Yeah, you got it exactly right. When Jesus suffered, and I will say unjustly, right? Jesus never sinned, and yet he still suffered, as we're commanded to. He didn't sin. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. How badly, when we're threatened, do we want to threaten someone else back? Do we want to stand up for ourselves? We want to take, you know, our defense into our own hands, and yet the example of Jesus is, don't. There's an encouragement in chapter 2 and chapter 4 for us who are suffering. What encouragement is found in those two verses for suffering people? Tammy? Trust in God who judges justly. Yeah. There is a God who judges justly. Let me read both of those verses for you. 2.23 says that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 4.19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are reminded in these verses that people are going to malign us, that people are going to persecute us. We are going to suffer unjustly at the hands of wicked people. And yet, there is a judge who judges justly. To paraphrase a lyric from a song that I really like right now, he will repay the tyrant on the day of his return. So let's wait. And remember that God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And trust our good and sovereign creator in the end times to come back and repay people for the injustices that we have received. Endure, because one day all things will be made new. We come now to chapter 5. Peter has instructions for how the church should interact with one another. He says, elders, this is how you should shepherd the flock of God. Younger people, this is how you should respond to elders. And yet there's one overarching word that actually describes our relationship to one another. Whether or not you're an elder or a young person, how do we respond to one another according to to Peter. Andy. With humility. Yeah, I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2 that in humility, we need to count others more significant than ourselves. I can't help but think that this has got to be a verse in the scriptures that just has to be at the forefront of our mind all the time. 
we have this ingrained way of thinking that I'm the best person in the room, all of these people need to cater to me, my opinion is the most important, and Paul and Peter are just flipping that on its head. The example of Christ shows us to consider other people more significant than yourselves. We have to be living like this because the consequence of living a proud life is what, according to that second question? What is God's disposition towards proud people? He resists the proud. It's even scarier than that, I think. God opposes the proud. God is in opposition to proud people. Think about that. If you are choosing pride, you are willingly setting yourself against God. And he opposes proud people. I said this already about something else today, but that is not a place I want to be in. To have your prayers hindered back from chapter 3, to be proud and have God against you, no thank you. So be humble. And question number three, after instructing us to be humble in verse 6, what action does Peter tell us that a humble person practices in verse 7? What is a mark of a humble person? What do they do? Joanne? They should be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Okay. Uh, from verse 7, what would a humble person do? Tammy? Cast all your anxieties on him. Yeah, one of the marks of humility is that you cast your anxieties on the Lord. And as we look at the application section then, I really wanted to just hone in on these two verses here. According to verses 6 and 7, what would Peter conclude about a person who refuses to cast their anxieties on God? Who thinks that they can handle life's problems themselves? Yeah, Dave, what would Peter say? That's a proud person. That's a proud person. A, a person who does not give their anxieties to God is proud. It wasn't until the last year or so that I heard a sermon that connected these dots for me, but why do you think an anxious person is actually a proud person? Why can Peter say that? Why is an anxious person proud? Claire? Because he lacks submission and humility. Yeah, Cynthia. Yes, they don't trust in the Lord. Anyone else? Bonnie? I think that person is actually trying to rely on themselves. Exactly. That person is trying to rely on themselves. Let's just think about where our anxieties stem from, right? There is uncertainty about the future. What if I don't get this job? What if I never get married? What if I don't have kids? What if I can't retire when I'm 65? Oh no, what if my health doesn't improve? There is all of this uncertainty, we often live in this what-if world where we play out these scenarios that haven't even happened yet, thinking about the worst possible outcomes, really just engaging in thoughts about things that aren't true, that are never going to happen, and we become very anxious people. And yet, as you guys have answered so well, what that is communicating is that we want to be in control, we want to know all of the answers, and when we don't have that semblance of control in our hearts and in our lives, when we don't know the answers to things, we get anxious. We want to play the part of God, and that really, at its core, is pride. Did it startle you to think this week that really one of the problems with anxiety is pride? That anxious people are proud people. So furthermore, ironically, what is this person not receiving from God according to verse 5? What is a proud person not getting? Brenda? Brenda? 
no grace. Yeah, so these people are actually getting what they want. They want to be God, and God says, okay, try life on your own. You're not going to get my help. You're not going to get my grace. So let me just encourage you, as we conclude, to just have a spirit of humility. When you are confronted with things that are bigger than you, when you are tempted to be anxious, as we all are, to just put yourself under the sovereign hand of God and say, Lord, you're in control, I'm not, that's a good thing. I trust you to work out all of these different scenarios in my life. And the awesome truth of verse 7 is that we can cast our anxieties on God, not because God is indifferent and he doesn't care, but he cares for us. God is good. He cares. He meets our needs. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would just give us uh, this mentality of living like an exile. As Peter reminds us, we are not citizens of this country, but citizens of the next. Please, Lord, help us to be humble, to trust you, to depend on you for everything, to not be marked by anxiety, but to just have a, a sense of releasing control of our lives and saying, I'm not in control. You are, Lord. I trust you to work out all things for good, as Romans 8 reminds us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.